We're continuing our series on leadership this morning with a message entitled, The Council of Equals. What I want to do is begin by just asking you a question for you to consider, think about. That is, is there a biblical model for church leadership? Is there such thing as a biblical model for church leadership? There are a number of various models out there today. One that is popular is called the CEO model of church leadership. And uh, in fact, I googled uh, <clears throat> a few things this week. That is a term, right? Google something. And uh, I came across an interesting uh, job description, so I want to just read a piece of it for you. It's an actual job description that appeared out there for a rather large church in California here. And it says, uh, according to our bylaws, the senior pastor shall be the president slash chief executive officer of XYZ Church and shall have general supervision, direction, and control of the business and officers of the corporation. He shall determine the general policies and best financial operating interests of the corporation. That's a fascinating job description, isn't it? So uh, there are some competing ideas of what it means to uh, have give leadership in, in God's church. And this is uh, one, as I say, it's called the CEO model, and it's, it's become rather popular. There were many, many such job descriptions available out there on the net. So let me ask you a question. You know, is the pastor the head of the church? Is the pastor the head of the church, you know, the guy who's in charge? Is that is that what it's all about? Is he the final authority for all matters relating to faith and practice? The end of uh, August, Lord willing, we are going to uh, examine Pastor Vincent for ordination. So he's studying this summer in preparation for the crucible, I mean for the, uh, for the examination. And uh, I just put in a plug now. I want to invite you to all come to that. It'll be a public examination and it will be, um, it will be very rewarding, I'm sure, for you to come. But, but the point of the matter is, is um, and I'm sure he will successfully uh, pass that, my brother, but once he does that, is he now invested with some special authority? Is that what that will do for him? Is he now, you know, officially set aside as the guy who baptizes? Is he now the official baptizer? Or is he the, is he the man who serves communion? Is he the, the guy who does all the burying and all the marrying? Well, you know, what is it that is going on? Let me ask you another question, just along this line. Even the title, Senior Pastor, is that a biblical title? Is that a biblical title, Senior Pastor? Well, what do the Scriptures say about these matters? That's what we really want to know. It's interesting to see what Google has to say, but we want to know what the Scriptures have to say, don't we? Well, in your handout, and we're going to be jumping around and looking at a lot of Scriptures this morning, so I can't direct you to any one passage for us to work our way through. So we're going to be jumping around a little, but in your handouts, I've given you the outline of where we're going here. And we want to look at three aspects of shared leadership. 
three aspects of shared leadership. So I'm already tipping my hand as to what I think the biblical model is. Three aspects of shared leadership that we must embrace so that we understand the importance of a council of equals in the leadership of God's church. So I've given you those aspects there in your handout. Let us work our way through them together in the time available to us. So, beginning first, we must acknowledge the biblical evidence for shared leadership. If this is really a biblical model, we should be able to find some biblical evidence to support that assertion. And the concept, by the way, of elders is so firmly rooted in the scriptures that it appears everywhere. Back into the Old Testament, clearly the model of leadership in the nation of Israel was elders. Numbers chapter 11 When Moses is having uh, such a hard time in the leadership of the nation of Israel after the Exodus, God tells him to to select 70 men from among the elders and then he will put his spirit upon them and they will help Moses in that process of leadership. So there's already elders in leadership of the nation at some level. And, of course, Moses draws out 70 from among them. Beyond that, when Jesus began his his um, public ministry, right? He selected 12 men from among his disciples. There was a, a, a multitude of people following him at that time, and he chose and selected 12 particular men that he might work with, that he might train, that they could carry on his work. It's interesting that he did not entrust the whole enterprise to one man, but he chose 12 in order to entrust the leadership to Furthermore, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, the church there at Antioch, a primarily Gentile church, there are five men in leadership there, and out of that, of course, is drawn Paul and Barnabas for the first missionary enterprise specifically to the Gentiles. And so even there we see a plurality of leadership within the church. So the concept is firmly rooted beginning in the Old Testament and following all the way through. But let me further, uh, and let me turn you now to Acts 14. So that'll be the first place I'll turn you. Acts 14 and verse 23. We're just going to buzz through some verses here and because I want to cement this concept in your mind. You know, sometimes things are so obvious that we overlook them. And the concept of the plurality of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ is so Uh, common that it could be overlooked. So I'm going to review a number of verses with you here and just continue to hammer that point home. Acts 14, verse 23. This is the end of the first missionary journey. And uh, Paul and Barnabas are returning back through the, uh, the area that they have evangelized and planted churches. Verse 23, and as they went back through, it says they appointed elders for them in every church. Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What I want you to notice there is that the elders are plural. The church is singular. Elders, plural, in every church, singular. So it is not one elder per church. It is multiple elders per church. Turn over to the right and go to to, uh, Acts chapter 15. And there, of course, in Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council. It was the point of contention as to how uh, the Gentiles entered into the faith of the God of Israel. Were they required to come under the law or not? And 
Verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders, plural, concerning this issue. Do you see it? Plural apostles, plural elders. Keep going to the right to uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Paul's on a, he's headed back to Jerusalem. He's in a hurry. He wants to be there by the day of Pentecost, verse 16 tells us. And so he stops at Miletus where there's a seaport and he calls to Ephesus to bring to him, not the pastor of the church, right? Verse 17, but from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, plural. So again, not a single man, not an elder, not a pastor, but elders, plural. He calls the elders to come to him. Turn uh, significantly to the right over to the book of James. <coughs> James chapter 5, verse 14. James is an early epistle. <coughs> demonstrating to us the concept is firmly rooted in the church at its very early stages. There in James chapter 5, verse 14, James is giving instruction. He says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church. Do you see that? And let, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So again, he's calling for the elders, plurality, more than one. Turn back to the left, go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul and Timothy, it says, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus over in Philippi, including the overseers, that is the episcopos, and deacons, plural again. Do you see it? Plural deacons, plural elders. I don't know why I did it this way, but I did, so I'm going to bounce you back to the right again to First Peter. I did it so that you would uh, become familiar with your New Testament. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders... Plural among you as your fellow elders, singular. So there are again elders in the plural. Back to the left to uh, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 5. The Apostle Paul there speaking to Titus. We had left him in Crete where a church had been planted, and it is clear. From the Apostle Paul's point of view, that a church is not mature until it has elders, plural. Verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. There must be a plurality of elders for things to be set in order. For a church to achieve a level of maturity, there must be a plurality of leadership within the church, men called elders. Back to the left again, verse Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. <clears throat> Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The uh, teaching of the, of the fellowship is instructed to the plurality of elders. Of course, First Timothy 3 tells us that an elder must be apt to teach, right? To be qualified in the first place. Give you one more. We won't turn there. You just mark it down. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses 12 and 13. Notice again the plural pronouns. So it is elders, plural. 
wherever you go in the New Testament and you look at leadership, the only conclusion I think you can come away with is that God entrusts the leadership of his church, his local assembly, to a body or a group of spiritually qualified men called elders. It is not the pastor's church. Okay? It's not even the elders' church for that matter, but the leadership has been delegated to men called elders. So we must acknowledge this biblical evidence for the plurality of leadership. And that leads us really into the second item that I wanted to look at with you this morning, and that is we must appreciate the beneficial effects of shared leadership. There are some very, very practical and beneficial effects that come to a congregation when there is true shared leadership. And I have six of them that I have uh, derived, and there are probably more, but there are at least six that I want to share with you this morning and think through with you. So first, practical benefit of shared leadership is that shared leadership provides balance. Shared leadership provides balance. What do I mean by that? Well, elders are men with feet of clay. They are, they are sons of Adam. And so they have their deficiencies. They have their own faults. They have their own blind spots. They have their own personality quirks. Okay, And any of you who know the elders of this church, you know that we have our own issues. Okay? None man doesn't have it all. No one has it all together. Everybody has what one writer called the fatal flaw, right? Something about them that that, uh, is an area of weakness for them that they are continually having to work on. So one guy doesn't have the whole thing. And so it is a group of men that together can provide balance. They can provide balance. What one person sees clearly, someone else perhaps doesn't. And that's very important. Just as um, some people frustrate us, we undoubtedly frustrate others. And so we need each other so that everybody is frustrated together. And then we have true plurality of leadership, right? Exactly. Alexander Strzok, let me read you a quote that he, uh, he pens in his very fine book on biblical eldership. He says, and I quote, In a team leadership structure, different members complement one another and balance one another's weaknesses. If one elder has a tendency to act harshly with people, the others can temper his harshness. If some members fear confrontation with people, others can press for action. Elders who are more doctrinally oriented can sharpen those who are more outreach or service oriented, and the outreach and service-minded elders can ignite the intellectually oriented members to more evangelism and service. The idea is is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so we need each other, and the church needs a plurality for balance. It gives balance to leadership. Secondly, second benefit, practical benefit here, is that it lightens the workload. It lightens the workload. Shepherding God's church requires long hours, long hours, weighty responsibility dealing with people's problems, dealing with people's problems, dealing with the effects of sin in people's lives. 
dealing with, and I know that you wouldn't imagine this to be true, but dealing with complaining that can come from the people of God. In fact, it can be so heavy that it could wear someone out. Let me just uh, read you a verse or two from Numbers 11. Numbers 11, this is all about Moses, the great lawgiver and deliverer of the nation of Israel. And uh, the people of Israel don't like the diet that God has provided for them, and they would prefer that it be supplemented with something more to the choosing of their palate. And so they complain to Moses about the diet that they're being forced to eat. And Moses says, verse 13, Numbers 11, Where am am I to get meat to give to this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Now, uh, gentlemen, as uh, fellow elders, I've never been... Uh, driven to that level of despair yet, okay? But uh, you all know, right? It can get pretty heavy at times. It gets pretty heavy at times. And so it's a lightening of the workload when there is a plurality of men who can share it together, right? Everybody carries their part of the log, and that's important, okay? Elders support each other. Elders pray for each other. Elders counsel each other. Elders encourage each other to stay with the task. Solomon said, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Through one, uh, Although one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What Solomon's saying is there are benefits in shared leadership. There are benefits in shared leadership. Shared leadership provides for diversification. Diversification of giftedness. One person doesn't have all of the giftedness. And so by diversifying into a shared leadership pool, then you get a diversification of leadership. Again, you get more um, in the sum than you get in the individual parts. Beyond that, you uh, avoid the trap of having one man trying to do everything. Super pastor, right? Who is everywhere at the same time ministering to all the people in their needs all at one time. So shared leadership provides that benefit. Third, It provides accountability. Shared leadership, one of the benefits is that it provides accountability. It provides a needed restraint. Listen carefully here. It provides a needed restraint on pride. A needed restraint on pride or greed or playing God with other people's lives. The New Testament grants considerable spiritual authority to the elders. We will examine further in the weeks to come some of what the the New Testament has to say about that. There is considerable spiritual authority granted to the elders of the church with regard to adjudicating matters of family concern, for example. 
Beyond that, dealing with the confrontation of sin or rebellious behavior or instruction of the congregation or enforcing the doctrinal statements or the behavioral uh, standards within the fellowship. So there's tremendous authority that has been granted. And that much power in one person's hands is inherently corrupting. It is inherently corrupting. And so it, it must be kept under check. It is intoxicating. It is a very intoxicating thing to have power. And so when it is spread among a pool or a group or a plurality of equals, there is a leveling of the surface where one person doesn't become puffed up, swelled up with that much power. You don't have to recollect very far back. You don't have to think too hard. How many lone you know, pastors have you seen fall, right? How many times have you seen the, the idea of the lone ranger pastor and later you read about them, you find out they've ended up in sin in one degree or another. And so it's a real protection, a restraint upon our own internal problems. Robert Greenleaf, in a book called Servant Leadership, has a fascinating observation about the need for plural leadership. Quote, he says, to be a lone chief atop a pyramid is abnormal and corrupting. None of us are perfect by ourselves and all of us need the help and correcting influence of close colleagues. When someone is moved atop a pyramid, that person no longer has colleagues, only subordinates. Even the frankest and bravest of subordinates do not talk with their boss in the same way that they talk with colleagues who are their equals, and normal communication patterns become warped. That is very insightful. When it's a boss with subordinates, the level of dialogue and communication and accountability breaks down. When it is peers, then you can talk to a peer as a peer and you can begin to bring up serious issues in their life that need to be dealt with. So plurality of leadership is important because of the accountability it provides. Beyond that, the accountability of, of overcoming laziness. Shared leadership provides accountability in overcoming the sin of laziness. Left to ourselves, most of us do only what we like to do. Right? We do, the, we, we do what we like to do first. And we always put off the difficult stuff. Just like a child with their dinner plate. Right? We'll eat the things we like. And we'll leave the green beans till the end, hoping they go cold and mom gives up and we can scrape them and get rid of them. Okay, so we eat that way as children. And most of us, when we operate in the business world or in any setting in which we find ourselves, that's the way we tend to do it as well. We do what we like first, that which is familiar, that which is comfortable, that which is easy, that which is enjoyable. And we put everything else off. I have an inbox here at the church, and uh, <clears throat> I've had to, um, or it's not an inbox, rather, it's a, it's a file folder where people, they put the mail and stuff, and I've had a bad habit of just using it as a, uh, a filing system where I'll just let stuff sit in it, and if it sits in it for 60 days and no one asks me about it, I throw it away, okay? And that's a, that's a poor but convenient way to deal with things that I don't want to deal with, so I've now, <clears throat> I'm under conviction to empty my mail slot every day and deal with whatever is in it. So Art and Vincent and Jim, I'm going to give it all to you. And 
I'm just going to stand there in front of it and sort it all into your boxes, and you guys will deal with it. No, I'm kidding. Maybe I'm not, right? Yeah. You know, I was trying to think about this to illustrate it. Um, when you go to the gymnasium, a workout partner is so helpful. Isn't that true? If you've got somebody, whether, you know, whether they go with you or you meet them there or whatever it is, if you've got some kind of a workout partner, you've got somebody to hold you accountable and you, and you overcome your laziness. Otherwise, at least if you're like me, you wake up and you go, ah, I don't feel so good today, kind of hurt a little, I'm not going to the gym. But you've got a workout partner, they spur you on and they help you to overcome that innate laziness. You know, uh, the Lord knows these things and when he sent out uh, the 70, do you remember how he sent them out? He sent them out two by two. Why do you think he did that? Well, one of the reasons he did that is because when, you, when somebody else is with you, and, and uh, Brother Jim, we, you know, we do the same thing, right? We send them out in partners because you know, you're out by yourself and you've had four or five rejections in a row, and it's easy to say, ah, oh, that house, they're not going to, you know, we're just going to pass that one by. But if you've got somebody with you to hold you accountable, it can help you overcome your laziness and make you more bold to go to that door and knock on it with the big scary dog in the front yard. And so there's benefit in having accountability partners. Fourth benefit. Fourth benefit is it provides doctrinal stability. It provides doctrinal stability to the local fellowship. For this, you have to go to Titus chapter 1. I can't remember, maybe we're still there. Titus 1 and verse 9. The elders are the guardians of the church's doctrinal statement. The elders are the guardians of the doctrinal statement of the local fellowship. An elder must be one holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. The teaching, you see it, with the, with the body of apostolic doctrine, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We're talking about elders, a requirement to be an elder. We've already established that there was a plurality of elders, and so it is though that plurality, that group of elders, whose responsibility is to guard the doctrinal purity of the church. It's doctrinal stability. If, it, if that is, mechanism is not in place, then what can happen is, is the church can get bounced back and forth from one place to another, depending on whoever is the most persuasive personality at the time. So it is the elders who are the ones who preserve that doctrinal stability through the generations. The teaching pastor may be the mouthpiece, if you will, of doctrine on a Sunday morning, but the the doctrine he articulates is the doctrinal position that the elders are in agreement with. So it is the elders are in agreement with the doctrine and they've, they've delegated the responsibility on a Sunday morning to a teaching pastor to articulate that doctrine from the Scriptures. Let me illustrate that for you. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the requirement of elders, and we got to that, that uh, tricky expression, right? The, uh, the husband of one wife. You remember that? That an elder candidate must be the husband of one wife. And we worked through a number of different possibilities, what that could mean, and, and uh, shared with you what we believe that it means. That is a one-woman man, that a, that a man who is pure of heart and mind to, uh, towards one woman. Well, how do we come to that interpretation? Was that just something that I came to and I stood up here and I said it and that's it? Well, no, that's not how it was derived. 
a number of years ago, that issue came before the elders and we had to come to a position upon it. And so what we did is we studied it together. And there was a lot of material supplied to the elders, study materials, in which they independently worked through on their own and came back together in a meeting, in a public meeting, to hash it out, to come to a conclusion of what was it Paul was communicating in that expression. Now, the amazing thing was, when all the elders came back together, was there was a uniform understanding of the passage. And so it didn't, there wasn't a lot of arm wrestling necessary. But it was through the independent study of that phrase by each and every one of the men. I don't remember how many there were at the time. I think certainly nine or ten men individually studying out that passage. The elders provide doctrinal stability to the church. Doctrinal stability. Fifth benefit is they provide orderly transitions. A plurality of elders, a shared leadership provides orderly transitions. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that when a single leader leaves, there are others to take up the slack. When a single leader leaves, there are others to take up the slack. How many churches do you know when a teaching pastor leaves, for whatever reason, the church kind of goes dead in the water, right? The church, you know, just kind of, it turns inward. It, it doesn't, it can't go anywhere. Everything kind of just collapses and grinds to a halt. That's because there's not been a sharing of leadership responsibilities at that level. So if you've got, if it's all a one-man show, when the man leaves, everything else stops. And so when you have a shared leadership, you've got orderly transitions. There is depth to the leadership that is, enables it to weather the storm of any one individual leaving. For example, over in Acts chapter 13 again. Well, let's go ahead and turn there because I don't want you to fall asleep on me. So go to Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 1. Now that we're at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. They sent them away. And so they sent out 40% of their leadership team. Two out of five were sent out. All right, that's a significant jolt to the leadership of the church. A significant jolt. Yet the church at Antioch did not dry up and blow away. It did not become dead in the water. But it was the church at Antioch continued forward. And, and I can show that to you in Acts 15. If you will just flip over a little bit to Acts 15. Verse 35. So Paul and Barnabas have been gone for a couple of years now. Okay, 40% of the leadership team is sent out. And most likely their best, the cream of the crop, is sent out. So what happens to the church in Antioch? Does it go dormant? Does it go dark? Does it have to, you know, uh, uh, turn inside and, and unable to have effective ministry? No. Verse 35 says, But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, that is, after they had come back after their first journey, teaching and preaching, and notice this expression, with many others also. Do you see that? With many others also, the word of the Lord. 
So what happened when 40% of their leadership team was sent out in a church planting endeavor, rather than the church go dead in the water, it just continued to grow and expand. And indeed, now there are many others teaching the word of God. Many others teaching the word of God. So what does that mean? It means that there was an orderly transition that went on and leadership was developed within the congregation and was being developed within the congregation so that the departure of any one or two individuals did not damage the church. And that leads us really into the sixth benefit of shared leadership. Shared leadership provides impetus for leadership training. Shared leadership provides impetus for leadership training. It gives a a reason to do it. Solo leaders by nature do not take the time to train others. Those that have a, a mindset of solo leadership do not typically take time to train anyone else. They just do it themselves, right? It takes time, it takes energy, it takes heartache to invest in someone else, to bring them along. And so if you are of a solo leader mindset, it's much easier to just do it yourself. Just do it yourself. That way you know it's done what? Right. Exactly. Because we all have our own definition of right. And so if you have a solo leadership mentality, that's what you're going to do. You're going to keep it into yourself and you're not going to spread it out. You're not going to spread it out. The reason, sometimes people are just threatened. Okay, the idea of, of a shared leadership can be a threatening concept. And what if the person who you're discipling for leadership turns out to be more competent and gifted than you are? That could be very threatening. And so some people, rather than take that chance, they just keep it to themselves. Others are, it's because as I said, it's just easier to do it yourself. It takes time to invest in other people. And so rather than invest the time in coaching and training, they just do it by themselves. But if you have a shared leadership model, which we believe to be a biblical model, then there is an impetus for leadership training. There's a reason to do it. There's a purpose in doing it. And leadership training is not easy. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes investment. You know, the reason we began FIT, and I've said this to you before, was not because for the elders necessarily to go and to get it more advanced theological training, but it was for the congregation to have that opportunity for more theological training as part of leadership development, as part of leadership development. It was a way to multiply ourselves rather than teach one person at a time, but you could teach a number of people at a time. So that is a, that is a process designed for leadership development. Now, those are six benefits. There are some potential hazards. There are some potential hazards of a shared leadership model. And so let me share those with you. We'll just go through this very quickly. But but shared leadership can be slow. Shared leadership can be disorganized. And shared leadership can be ineffective. Okay? Slow, disorganized, and ineffective. Gridlock, if you like. Shared leadership can be gridlock. There is nothing more efficient than one-man rule. Okay, if you if you if you like efficiency, the most efficient mechanism of government is one man rule. Problem is, there are no men who are children of Adam who are fit to have that much authority. But when the millennium comes, beloved, it'll be one man rule, won't it? Because it'll be entrusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only King authorized and, and entitled to have such power. So when you have shared leadership, you're looking at slow. 
potentially slow, potentially disorganized, potentially ineffective ministry. It needs to be uh, countered by prayer and perseverance, humility, patience, mutual respect, trust, and love. Okay? And I know there are, sometimes it's frustrating to people in the congregation because they want something to get done now, but the, the leadership model is a shared leadership model. And so sometimes the elders are slower than you might like them to be. Okay, but that is, well, although it is a downside, it is a worthwhile downside for the, for the upside of a more biblical model. So, shared leadership, it, it, it moves authority and responsibility outside of just one or two men out to a group of biblically qualified men. What it means is there's no hierarchy. There is no hierarchy. One man's opinion or counsel is not more godly than another's. Okay? One man's opinion, one man's counsel is not inherently more godly, more wise than another. One elder is not closer to God than another one. Okay? So we don't have the... We have Mr. Holy that we always go to for advice. That's not how it works. Okay? It is, it is a group of men who are biblically qualified. And as they, as they sharpen one another, as iron sharpens iron, right? So one man sharpens another, it brings about... A better decision process. No one is closer to God. No one's prayers are more efficacious. Right? No one's more holy or godly than others. It is a shared leadership. The elders act jointly as a council. They share equal authority and responsibility for the leadership of the church. But having said that, and this is kind of where we go for the last um, uh, aspect that we need to look at. Having said all of that, we do need to recognize differences in giftedness. There are differences in giftedness. There are differences in biblical knowledge. There are differences in leadership ability or experience or even dedication. We do recognize those things. In fact, the Romans had a phrase for this. It was called primus inter pares. And what it meant is first among equals, first among equals. And that leads us to the recognition of the basic exception to shared leadership. The basic exception to shared leadership. Jesus chose 12 disciples. Amen? He chose 12 and he commissioned all of them to preach. Right? And all of them to evangelize. But he singled out three of them for special recognition, if you like, or special attention. Right? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John are singled out of the twelve for special attention by Christ. They were first among equals. First among equals. They were chosen by Jesus Christ to witness His power and His glory in a way that the other apostles were not. For example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, not all the apostles were there, only these three. In the healing or the raising of the, of the dead daughter of the synagogue official, Luke 8, it is only those three that are there to witness it, not all of the apostles. So there is this idea of first among equals. Beyond that, among the three, there is one who stands out. Isn't that true? And his name was what? Peter. His name was Peter. Peter stands out among all twelve and among the three. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, just write it down and I'll read it to you. It says, now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. And then he begins to list the other ones. Simon is called the first. He is the first among equals. There are four lists of the apostles in the New Testament. 
All right. Matthew has his list. Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1. There are four lists of apostles in the New Testament. And if you look at those lists uh, carefully, you'll notice a, a few very interesting things. And that is that the 12 are always divided up into groups of four. They're divided up into groups of four. So there are three sublists of the 12 apostles. And the first um, grew, and, and they're in different orders within those subgroups. But the first name mentioned in each subgroup in all four places is Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Okay? Those are the preeminent ones within the four subgroups. So there were three, uh, three apostles or disciples in each subgroup, but the first one mentioned in all four accounts is always the same man, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Or I've, I'm sorry, I've said that wrong to you. Let me try it again. The first group has Peter, James, John, and Andrew in it. The second group has uh, Philip, Matthew, Nathaniel, and Thomas. The last group has James, Thaddeus, and the two Judases. Now, the point. Peter, Philip, and James are the ones listed First, in the subgroups. That's what I was trying to tell you. Okay? Within the subgroups, the names move around, but the number one person in each subgroup, Peter, Philip, and James, is always the one listed first in those four different lists of apostles. Okay? So it's communicating something to us that they were always thought of first. They were the leader of the subgroups. Beyond that, it is Peter, right, who is the leader of the whole enterprise. It is Peter to whom Jesus appears, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. He says, strengthen the other disciples on the, on the afternoon of his resurrection. Jesus appears to Peter. So Peter is the preeminent among the other 12. The first half of the book of Acts is given to the ministry of Peter. It is Peter who is the one uh, with whom uh, preeminence lies, the first among equals. In fact, in the book of Acts, the early part of the book of Acts, you see Peter and John always walking together. Peter's always talking. John's never saying anything. Okay? And it's not until Peter is crucified and off the scene that all of a sudden John opens his mouth and we find out he has a lot to say. He writes a gospel, right? He writes the book of Revelation and he writes three epistles. So John has a lot to say, but John was younger than Peter. And so he gave deference to Peter. And so John in the early part is always quiet. Peter's the one talking. When Peter's gone, John rises in preeminence. But it was Peter, James, and John who were part of the inner three. Let me take you to one other passage of Scripture here very quickly to illustrate this idea of first among equals. That's 1 Timothy 5. First Timothy 5, verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. All the elders are responsible for pastoral care. All of the elders are supposed to be able to teach. They must be men who can teach, apt to teach. But there are certain elders, because of giftedness, that are, that are uh, it says here, they rule well. I mean, transition rule, I don't like so good. It's, it's uh, prohistemi. We talked about that before. They stand well before the congregation. They give more effective leadership to the congregation than some of the other elders. They're, they're visionaries, they're planners, they're organizers, they're motivators, they're protectors. Those, they exhibit those qualities at a level above the other men. And so they are considered worthy of double honor, verse 17. 
Okay? In context, the honor here is talking about money. It is talking about money. In fact, in in uh, same chapter, uh, verse 3, where it says, Honor widows who are widows indeed, it's talking about money. So what, what is going on here is that there are certain elders, because of giftedness, because of aptitude, that that exercise their leadership at a level of first among equals, and they are to be financially supported. That's what Paul's talking about here. It is the financial support. They work hard, literally to the point of exhaustion, at preaching and teaching, and so they are eligible for financial support. Last week, the congregation affirmed the recommendation of the elders here to to release Jim Wine, Brother Jim Wine, to ministry full-time. Brother John Wine has shown himself faithful among the elders for a number of years. And it was obvious to the elders as they, as they examined his life and his ministry that God had, has gifted you in some special ways. And so it makes sense for you to not have to spend so much of your time at the gas company, but rather to invest that time and energy here among the congregation. And you all, of course, are in agreement with that. And so he joins the, the elders in the sense of a compensated or a paid elder, worthy of Double honor, verse 17. When I was um, <clears throat> given the privilege of, of um, being the, uh, the preacher teacher in this fellowship four years ago, I self-consciously chose not to take the title senior pastor. I did not take the title senior pastor. And the reason I didn't take the title senior pastor is because I didn't think it communicated well what my role and responsibilities really were. And so I took the title to myself, which I believe is a more biblical title, actually, of teaching pastor, pastor, teacher, Ephesians 4. Because I think it speaks of what my responsibilities and duties are in, a, in large measure in this fellowship. I am not the senior pastor. I think senior pastor is a business-oriented title. And this is not a business. I am not a business executive. I am an elder who has been given responsibility to be a teacher amongst you, teaching pastor. I want to end with a confession. I want to make a confession to you. At a town hall meeting a couple of months ago, you remember that um, I spoke at that first town hall meeting and there were there was a number of questions that were raised, and one question about direction of the church and so forth. And I made at that time a statement that I have regretted ever since making. And so now I'm going to retract that statement and ask for your forgiveness for that statement. And this, the uh, statement that I made was that this won't uh, such and such a concern was raised, and I said it won't happen as long as I'm the pastor here. And by that statement, I communicated something that I do not believe. That's not what I, what I want to communicate. It does not rely upon me as the pastor in terms of where the direction of the ministry is going. This is not David's church. Okay? It's not the elder's church either. Okay? And it's not your church. And it's not our church. It's God's church. But God has um, raised a group of men to give leadership, pastoral leadership to the church. What I should have said and what I want to say now and to be on the record is that as long as the elders okay, are in uh, leadership of this church, then that concern you do not need to worry about. It will not come to pass. It not, it's not resting on my shoulders. Okay? It rests upon the shoulders of the men in leadership of the church, the council of equals. All right? So it's not me. It's us. It's us. It is the men 
raised up by the Spirit of God and invested with this, by the Scriptures with great spiritual authority and entrusted by you with pastoral leadership of the fellowship. Okay? Let's pray. Well, our Father, we... Uh, I've been looking at an issue that is um, is important to the life of the church. It's important, our Father, of course, because the model of leadership sets the tone and direction for the ministry. People model or follow that which they see modeled in front of them. And so, our Father, as the Scriptures so clearly say, a, a council of equals, a plurality of leadership is is what you want because we are a body and we are in this together. Lord, I do pray for the the elders of this fellowship and ask your blessing upon them. I pray that you would help us to continue to pursue diligently after the Lord Jesus Christ and courageously proclaim him. I pray, Father, that you would help us as a group of men to be able to express our opinions one to another with directness and forthrightness that you would help us to put away from ourselves any notions from the culture or the business world that, that would seek to move us away from your desired model of leadership. And I pray, our Father, as a council of equals, pastor elders, shepherds called amongst this flock, that you would enable us to minister to those entrusted to our care, not for our glory, but for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.